Good morning, and welcome to episode 183 of Effectively Wild, the daily podcast from Baseball Prospectus. I am Ben Lindbergh. Joining me is Sam Miller. Uh, it is Wednesday, so it's the listener email show. Uh, Sam is looking at emails as we speak, and we're just going to kind of pick some as we go. Haven't talked about them yet, but we're going to talk about them now. Um, so what's up first? Uh, actually, I want to um, start with a question that um, we didn't get to last week. Oh, yeah, and there so were a lot last might... week that we didn't get to. Yeah, it might seem slightly dated, but it might not because I might take it in a slightly different direction. But this was from a fellow named Alan who says, pertaining to the Rangers and Nationals, opening day was on the road versus the two worst teams in baseball. Considering they played on the road but had huge series following, why didn't each respective team start their rotations out with their number three? Today we would have had Darvish versus the Angels and Strasburg versus Cincinnati. Uh, instead, uh, well, okay. Um, so the idea being uh, don't burn your ace against a lousy team. Save your ace for a good team when you really need an ace. And the reason that I want to talk about this is because um, while reading about Hector Sanchez and the Giants rotation, Andrew Baggerly of Comcast, I think, um, said that his theory is that um, Sanchez caught Zito last year primarily uh, because Bochy figured Zito is the worst pitcher already. And if you're already unlikely to win the game, you might as well choose that day to, to, to give Posey a rest. I mean, if you're going to give Posey a rest sometime, you might as well do it when you figure you're already going to lose. And that Sanchez is Lincecum's personal catcher now because Lincecum has replaced Zito in Bochy's mind as the worst pitcher in the staff on the staff and therefore gives the Giants the least chance to win. And so in that there in that uh if, I don't actually believe that that's true, but in that explanation... You don't believe that be, that's why that, why he's ordering it that way, you mean? Uh, right. Mm -hmm. I think that... I mean, I, I, you know, maybe it is, maybe it isn't, but I don't get the sense that Andrew Baggerly has inside information in this case. Mm -hmm. I, I think he was just sort of being speculative, but maybe he does. Who knows? Um, so that's kind of the opposite theory, which is that uh, you... Well, I guess it's the same sort of principle, but in the in the other side, where you uh, you bench your best players when you have the least chance of winning, mm -hmm. where instead of like Alan is saying, bench them when you have the best chance of winning. And so I wonder though whether either I've always wondered this whether teams should that comes up kind in of, in the playoffs sometimes. It does, like rotation. if Verlander's pitching right. game one, mm -hmm. like, you know, did it make sense for the Giants to start Zito against Verlander because they figured they were going to lose anyway? Mm -hmm. Of course, that happened to not come true in either direction. But, um, yeah, people will talk about that. Should you match up your ace against their ace? Or is it better to match up your ace against their worst pitcher? And so first I wanted to know if you have any thoughts about that. Mm, I've always wondered about it, too, and I'm I'm not sure, I guess... I don't know. I guess you'd kind of have to like project uh, what the what the run differential between you and and your opponent would be. I mean, I guess I don't know if it's not like you are going to be projected to lose by five runs to the other team in any scenario. So maybe if you were a little bit worse because of your starting pitcher, then then you would really want. Posey in there instead of Sanchez to kind of 
even out the deficits. Yeah, exactly. It seems like you could very easily make the case that Posey should be in specifically for those games when the Giants need him the most. Right. It's uh, it's. I mean, the principle is you don't want to leave runs on the table. You don't want to basically waste a lot of runs. You know, basically that you want to be the team that beats Pythagoras instead of you know does the opposite and wins a lot of blowouts and loses the close ones. So you want to have. Uh, you don't want to win a lot of games nine to two and lose a lot of games three to two. And so it, the idea is that you can somehow efficiently deploy your your players in a way that you have them in there when they're likely to be needed the most. But I just don't think that it works that way. I don't think baseball is nearly predictable enough, and I don't think the margins between the best and the worst are big enough. I mean, you watch the Astros uh, you know, beat a first-place team with some regularity, and you realize that it's very hard to time these things. So I did a, I did a quick experiment just before we did this with a random number generator, and I created a... Uh, hypothetical team that had two pitchers. One of their pitchers has a 3.5 ERA, and so gives up either two, three, four, or five runs every game. And then another one of their pitchers has a 4.5 ERA and gives up three, four, five, or six runs every game. And they're going up against an inferior team, and that team has a, a pitcher with a 4.5 ERA and a 5.5 ERA. Mm-hmm. And so I just matched them up, the, the different iterations, to see whether having your ace go against their worst pitcher is a waste of your ace. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's basically identical. They have the same winning percentage in either scenario. I only ran about like maybe 60 or 70 of these uh, tests, and I'm sure there's a actually pretty simple mathematical way of figuring this out that I don't know about. Um, but it didn't seem like there was any obvious advantage to trying to, to take advantage of this. Yeah, uh, I, I agree, I think. I don't, I don't think that then any manager is really raising the white flag like that in any particular game. I mean, I think, I don't know if a, if a team thought its starter was that bad that they would just kind of throw the game almost or, or I don't know, go part of the way towards that. I, I don't know that they would start that guy. They would find someone else if they thought he was, if he was putting them in that deep a hole. Um, well, the re- yeah, the reason I don't think that Andrew Baggerly probably has inside information about this being true is that if this actually were Bochy's thinking, I think it would be the most closely kept secret in the world. Because think about how, right. think about how disheartening that would be to Sanchez, to Lincecum, to Zito, to everybody involved, mm-hmm. <laughs> if if that in any way became known. So, uh, I just can't imagine that that even even in the kind of off the record conversations that people have with reporters that that would ever get out. Mm-hmm. Just a guess. Yep. Uh, all right. Do you have any other questions that uh, jump out at you that I should go to? Uh, no. Oh. <laughs> <There's>, okay. <laughs> uh, we could talk about the, the DH question, I guess. All right. Timothy. Let's talk about the Yeah. So Timothy says, I went to a Mariners game and saw Elvis Andrews playing DH. I asked myself a question, and then he came back and asked us a question. Mm-hmm. Are the days of David Ortiz and Jim Tomey over? Are the days of the latter stages of Carl Everett's career over? Is there no more professional DH? Is the DH slot now just a chance to sneak an extra position player on the roster and delegate the odd rest day from one player to the next by relieving them of the responsibility of playing the field one day every two weeks? Um, well, the, the days of David Ortiz are not over. Uh, he's going to be back this week. And there's still Travis Hafner, designated hitter. Uh, he still exists. And there are a few guys like that around. I mean, I, 
I think we've talked about this on the podcast before. I think I remember uh, citing some stat about maybe Billy Butler being the only only really full-time DH last year. I mean, Ortiz got hurt, so he didn't qualify for whatever cutoff I was using, and same with Hafner, but uh, I think it might have been 500 play appearances or something. Butler was the only guy, and and it does sort of seem like teams are just kind of rotating people in from other positions and and giving them a, a rest day without being completely off. Um, at least that is the sense I get. I haven't haven't done any rigorous analysis of that, but uh, that seems to be the case to me that there is some trend toward toward that being the more typical situation than the the one designated designated hitter yeah i think uh i think every team would like to have uh as much roster flexibility as possible and every team would also like to have a david ortiz type hitter on their team at an affordable price Mm -hmm. and i think there's a pretty good equilibrium that uh that uh, has developed whereby there are only a few of those guys out there um and if they get too cheap then a team will go sign him um, so no team gives up on that option completely. Um, but if they're not too cheap, then teams uh, would generally prefer to have that as a flexible spot. I mean, I know some some managers in particular uh, uh, really prefer to have no designated, designated hitter mm-hmm. uh, because they like the flexibility it gives them. Um, and I don't the I think of a team like the Rays, which puts a huge premium on roster flexibility and it seems like a failing on their part uh, i think I've, i i can't remember where i had this conversation oh yeah. i had this conversation with uh with uh, adam sobsey right. in our yes. season preview mm-hmm. uh, it seems like a failing on their part that they have had such weak hitters at such offensive premium positions um but i think that it's fairly consistent with uh with what they're trying to do with their roster uh, which is to sort of not uh, to to treat a roster spot as a commodity just as much as you treat home runs and strikeouts as commodities. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't think that it'll ever go away as long as there are uh, valuable hitters who can't play a position. Um, they're going to have jobs, and uh, I, I don't feel like there's a big market inefficiency one way or the other on those guys. They basically slot into the warp model fairly well, and they basically seem to get paid normally uh, maybe there's some inefficiency for like older guys like the Bobby Abreu types who don't find teams until late in the offseason but not a not a big one although I do wonder why Jim Tomey is sort of not more loved by major league teams in the latter stage of his career yeah I guess he's just too fragile I don't know at least right now he seems to be incapable of staying healthy for very long um, okay, let's talk about this Stanton question uh, from Ken R. I listened to your Stanton podcast today, and it made me wonder, would there be any benefit to batting Stanton in the leadoff position? There seems to be a particular emphasis placed on throwing strikes to a leadoff hitter, and this might be the spot to get the most out of Stanton the hitter, given the strength of the current lineup. It might mean more strikes to swing at, and it might also force him to be a bit more selective. What are your thoughts? I actually started, uh, I, I spent about 
an hour starting a piece about this topic today, and then I realized that I didn't know how to get the more pertinent information that I was going to need down the line, so then I threw it away. Mm. Uh, but, um, yeah, the obvious downside to that is that, um, well, basically, teams are going to pitch to Stanton when it's in their interest to. And what you kind of ideally want is to have it be in their interest to pitch to them because they have no other choice, um, which is to say the bases are loaded sort of a situation. And you're not going to get that situation very often when he's batting leadoff because, uh, you know, a quarter of his at-bats are by definition going to be with nobody on base and uh, the rest of them are going to come just after the pitcher and the eight hitter and the seven hitter. Uh, so he's not going to have much uh, ability to do damage, even if he is getting pitched to. He's going to get pitched to a lot more, but there are going to be situations where he can do less damage because there's nobody on base and there's you know one out or whatever. And so it's a balance, um, and you want to figure out a way to get him pitched to, um, but also uh, you know where he can do something with that. Um, the benefit to it that is indisputable is that he would get more plate appearances and if they do continue to pitch around him and I don't think they really would pitch around him the way that like I, I, like Bonds in 2004 Bonds was intentionally walked with nobody on 19 times um, which is kind of crazy because like Tommy who is an you know Tommy's like an all-time great hitter mm -hmm. and it is also left-handed and Tommy is in has one season in his career where he was intentionally walked 19 times. Um, total. In any situation. <laughs> in, in any situation. Uh, Jim Rice's career high for intentional walks is 10. Mm -hmm. And Bonds was intentionally walked 19 times with nobody on base. Um, I don't think Stanton is, at, is ever going to quite get the Bonds treatment, though. Um, so I think he would get uh, a lot more at-bats and a lot fewer ribby opportunities. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. I guess there could come a point at which you could try that if he's getting pitched around so much that he's never getting a pitch to hit anyway. I don't know. Um, I don't know. I mostly agree with you. Probably better to leave him where he is, I think. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe if you... Uh, I don't know. You. It might make sense. I, I'm not saying it would make sense, but it might make sense if, like, you, if you had the the pitcher bat sixth or something like that. Um, but I don't know if that would make sense either. Mm -hmm. I don't know. You're, I mean, you get to a point where, I mean, look, there's an optimal way to build your lineup and it, and you know, that that's a sort of a math question that's been answered and, and is a non-starter in the real world. Um, and we could certainly point you to those, to that work, to those studies. Um, but, uh, as far as Stanton goes, um, it's probably, I don't know. It's, it's not my favorite idea. Yeah. <laughs> if, yeah. That's it would, a fair way to end it. It would, uh, I don't know, whatever whatever the, the Marlins' optimal lineup is, is so far from an optimal lineup that yes. <laughs> I don't know that it's worth even experimenting to that degree. Or maybe, uh, I don't know, maybe it's the time that you do want to experiment the most. But, uh, yeah, probably not that, that experiment. Yeah. I wonder what position in the... I mean, yeah, what you'd want to do and what I, why I pulled the plug is what you want to do is you want to find the situations where you want to figure out the, the likelihood that Stanton is going to get walked in each situation. So runner on first with one out, he's going to get walked X percent of time. 
Uh, bases loaded, two out, he's going to get walked X percent of time. So you want to figure out how often he's going he's to get walked in each situation. And then you want to balance that uh, against how often each situation comes up in each spot of the batting order. Mm-hmm. And then you want to value the benefit of, a, of Stanton actually getting to hit. So whether... Uh, you know, he produces more runs as, as uh, in each situation, hitting or walking. And then you just uh, multiply all those together, and then you have your answer. So somebody can do that. Uh, anything else jump out at you here? Yeah, well, I want to at least read Chris's question. I don't know if we have an answer for him. Okay. Uh, but Chris says that he was watching the Tigers-Blue Jays game, and it was 35 degrees Fahrenheit in Detroit, uh, both uh, Josh Johnson and Doug Fister fought the cold early on, barely warming their hands between pitches and in the dugout. It got me thinking, quarterbacks everywhere wear hand warmers around their waists to fight the cold when not in action. Why isn't there a secure lightweight equivalent for pitchers? I can imagine it might hypothetically get in the way of your mechanics, but I have to think the benefit of a loose, warm pitching hand outweighs the cost. Um, I've heard probably in two or three games every day for the past week, somebody mentioned, a broadcaster mentioned, how important it is for the pitcher and or fielders to keep their hands warm Mm -hmm. because if you don't have warm hands, you can't feel the ball and you can't feel the ball, you're toast. And so I don't don't have an answer for this. You said you were going to look into it. You might not have an answer for it, but I wanted to read it so that everybody can think about this tomorrow when they're watching games. Yeah, I plan to ask some pitchers about this at some point. I haven't yet, but... It's interesting. I don't know. I mean, you certainly see pitchers blowing on their hands to try to keep them warm and, and getting permission to do that. Um, so there there clearly is a desire to keep their hands warm, and they seem to think there is some benefit to keeping their hands warm. So you would think something that would enable them to do that would be something they would be willing to try. But um, I don't know. I mean, I guess... I can't really think of a, a downside either other than just it's not something that they're used to. Uh, and so maybe they just don't want to incorporate something that they haven't tried because, I don't know, the, the mechanics and the delivery and the motion are all such pinpoint, precise movements that one little addition to that, one little unfamiliar aspect could throw the whole thing off. I don't know. Um yeah, when when Will Carroll was was writing about uh, these lightweight hats right. that could protect pitchers, like they, those got no traction because pitchers thought it was going to disrupt them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, the football hand warmers seem to me fairly new. I don't watch football that closely, but I have watched football in my life, and they seem new to me. Like it seems like a fairly new phenomenon. If I had to guess, I would guess that they've been around for like maybe. 12 or 15 years, but maybe I'm completely wrong on that. Um, so maybe it just isn't, um, you know, maybe it's just still a relatively new thing. Yeah, I have no idea about that. I don't even know what the hand, I didn't even know that those were hand warmers. I mean, I just, I see their hands in there, but I never knew exactly what they were doing. Like, <laughs> what are, do else those, could they be doing in there? Well, I mean, I didn't know if it was like a pocket. Uh-huh. It's not like a pocket, right? I mean, it's something that creates isn't heat. It like, isn't it like a muff? Sort of like is that all it is? I, I think there's no. There's, there's I no, don't think there's one of those. It's not like a hot water things bottle. Things you put like in your boots when you go skiing and you break it and it produces heat. I don't. You don't think so? Um. Do you want to hit pause while I Google this. <laughs> hit pause. Okay. Hit pause. All right. Three, two, one. Pause. And we're back. So uh, <laughs> this is what we found. We found the Under Armour Adult Hand Warmer uh, on a football site. 
which has three features. Cuff ends, trap heat, and keep out the cold, allowing you to warm your hands for peak performance. Waterproof exterior makes this hand warmer versatile all season long, and convenient zipped pocket is specially designed for hot packs. Mm-hmm. So, so it assuming works without using those things, but you can put those things in there. And that's what it seems to me. Yeah. Hmm. All right. Well, yeah. At some point, I plan to ask someone about this. Um, can we do one more? Sure. All right. Uh, Dane sent this question about quadruple A players. Uh, Good morning, Ben and Sam. I am a big Royals fan, and I am frustrated by the number of quadruple A players that Kansas City seems to quote-unquote develop, most recently Johnny Jabatella. Are there any statistical ways to identify quadruple A players? Are there any organizations that are particularly good at identifying quadruple A players before they arrive in the major leagues? Um, So I would... I would argue, and I don't, I don't know the answer to that. I would, I would guess that yes, there are players who are, are or teams who are better at that than others. But I kind of doubt it would be a statistical way of identifying them. I would think it's mostly a, a scouting thing because I don't know that the thing about quadruple players is that their stats suggest that they can succeed in the majors and. I don't know, maybe some of them strike out a lot and you kind of worry whether they will make enough contact to hit for power in the major leagues. And I don't know, but I mean, the reason or the way that they become quadruple A players is we look at their stats and think, man, that guy can really hit. He can probably hit in the majors. And then he gets to the majors and he can't because he has a slow bat and he just feasts on on triple A breaking balls or, or whatever whatever the explanation is. So I would think that there are teams that are better at screening those guys um, just purely in a scouting sense. But I would think that with the Royals in particular, I, I mean, I would guess that it's not a failure of the Royals scouting that they have maybe had more of, of these guys than other teams. And, and I don't know for sure that they have, but let's just say that they have. I would guess that that's mostly just because the Royals have been bad for a while. Uh, and so they've had roster spots for these guys, or they've they've had teams that that are willing to try it and see whether it works. So I don't know a a Aquila Kayahui uh, or a or a Clint Robinson, um, guys like that could maybe get a spot on the Royals roster because they aren't very good teams. So might as well try it and see if it works. But I know that. Uh, that the player that Dane mentioned is someone that I think we both like, and I know you wrote about as as a potential breakout player, I think, in, in our staff lineup card at some point this year. Um, so I don't know that we believe that he is one of those guys yet, but maybe we are wrong. Are you still a believer in, in Javatella? Yeah, uh, well, more than more than the Royals are, less than I'm a believer in like like Ryan Braun. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah, I I mean I guess the fact that they keep playing Chris Getz instead of him uh, makes me wonder what is wrong with him. But um, I don't know. We kind of know what Chris Getz is, and, and it's not a very good player. Uh, so I would give him a shot. I think at this point, I would. I would give him longer than he has had because uh, he has hit very well in AAA and, and has had, I don't remember off the top of my head, but maybe 300-something at-bats or plate appearances in the majors. And 
and he's hit very poorly, worse than Chris Katz, but uh, you would think he has more upside ultimately. But I don't know. That would be that would be my guess. If there is one organization that seems like it's had more of these guys than others, I would think it would be a, a product of that that team's competitive situation more than their inability to to tell which players are quadruple A players. Mm-hmm. All right. All right. Okay. Sounds uh, good. All right. Then we will be back with a couple more shows this week, uh, and we will talk to you tomorrow.